Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Hans-Ulrich Obrist. I am artistic director of the Serpentine. Great, thanks. And we're in your office today, a blustery autumnal afternoon. It's a windy day in Kensington Gardens. Okay. Okay. Ready to go. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This episode features the first of my two-part interview with Hans Ulrich Obrist curator and artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries in London. Oberst embodies a state of perpetual motion. Since the age of 16, he's been on the move, compulsively traveling to meet artists in their studios. Inspired in part by Giorgio Vasari, who chronicled the lives of Renaissance artists and architects in equal measure, much of Oberst's work consists of connecting these two disciplines, among many others, in a way that's most clearly displayed through his long-standing interview project, which has been ongoing since 1993 and has involved Obrist recording thousands of interviews with the world's most significant artists, scientists, writers, architects, philosophers, and filmmakers. Known for his interview marathons, which have sometimes run continuously for 24 hours, and after which, in one case, he was briefly hospitalized for exhaustion, Obrist's prodigious output has become a central part of his public persona. For a time, he organized what he called the Brutally Early Morning Club, convening artists and thinkers at impossibly early hours to liberate time in his busy schedule, and he works with a night producer who continues his efforts while he sleeps. Obrist's projects themselves often exhibit a kind of restlessness and resistance to the status quo. He's put on shows in the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's country house and a hotel restaurant frequented by the Swiss writer Robert Walser. He's also made exhibitions inside of airplanes, hotel rooms, and even in the sewers of Zurich, as well as in London's Sir John Soane's Museum, where he also briefly lived. Oberst often refers to himself as a junction maker, drawing together an ever-expanding network of people and ideas into a living map of contemporary art. This act of connection seems at times to verge on its own kind of performance. While researching for this episode, I learned that when curating his first show in London in 1995, Ubrist rented a three-bedroom flat in Elephant and Castle, had 50 copies of House Keys made, and gave them out to artists and curators passing through the city. It was in that flat that he met his partner, the South Korean artist Koo Jung-ae. This kind of bridging between art and life is a hallmark of Obrist's work, including his first ever exhibition, which he held in 1991 at the age of 23 in the kitchen of his tiny apartment. An experiment in self-organization and an early questioning of the spaces in which one can present art, the exhibition came about during Obrist's days as a student of political economics at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. Highly ephemeral and sparsely attended, 
It featured work from the likes of Christian Boltensky, Richard Wentworth, and Fischlein Weiss, and became, in its aftermath, a kind of origin story of Obrist's career. On the other hand, his ongoing exhibition, entitled Do It, has attained its own notoriety as perhaps the longest-running art exhibition in the world. It's been shown in over 50 locations across the globe over the past 20 years, and consists of written instructions by artists as a point of departure, each of which could be interpreted anew every time they are enacted. These kinds of projects and anecdotes will likely be familiar to those who know of Obrist and his work. And so, instead of simply retracing them, this interview, which took place over two sessions in September and November of 2023, attempts to hold still this curator of perpetual motion and consider his more personal motivations and influences. And now, here's part one of my interview with Hans Ulrich Obrist. I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start, as you often do at the beginning, so you were born in St. Gallen, an only child in this Swiss town with no view to the ocean, and in the past you've explained that it's that kind of isolation that probably in part is what led you to this desire to connect with people. At the same time, you were also reborn in a particular artist studio, the studio of Fischli and Weiss. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk more about that birth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the beginnings, you know, um, I kind of, as a teenager, started to um, uh, to visit studios. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of grew out, I suppose, of me encountering art in the most unexpected way because um, my parents weren't really in the in the art world, and they were also not really taking me to see exhibitions. So we didn't really go to see art, but somehow art came to our house and. Um, he came to our house through, for example, the medicine of Emma Kunz, you know, the Swiss healer and artist Emma Kunz, who with her pendulum made these amazing drawings. We did a show of her here at the Serpentine and she started to get a lot of attention lately, you know, in terms of this whole question of art and spirituality. Mm-hmm. With like Hilma of Klint, you know, she really created these amazing, amazing drawings where basically the pendulum guided her pen. And her art was shown on packaging, is that right? Exactly, and then, you know, my mother would always buy this, this powder, this healing powder, mm-hmm. which one can either drink or take baths in, or can apply it in many different ways. One can also give it to the plants. Um, and, um, and on the package there was this little drawing, and that was really sort of a portal, you know? So it was like an open gate to possibility. I kept always looking as a, as a child at this, at this drawing. Um, and I think the isolation since I had to do with multiple factors, you know, because basically, I mean, I was born, I started in St. Gallen later on, I was born in Zurich and then just the first couple of days and then my parents, you know, were actually in Weinfeld and it's a small town. And um, uh, indeed, one couldn't really, you know, have an access to the sea because there were the mountains, uh, but there was a lake nearby. And the lake um, is basically a lake linking three countries, basically the Bodensee, the Lake of Constance is linking or connecting Germany, Switzerland and, and Austria. So as a child, you know, there was always also this possibility. It was a bit claustrophobic to grow up in a small town, but there was also always this possibility of maybe going to the movies to Germany mm. because there was no cinema where we were. So we would go, or one would go to the market to buy some vegetables or fruits to Germany because it was the bigger town. Or one could actually swim to Austria. You mm-hmm. could just swim mm-hmm. on the lake. And so in a way, 
that idea of crossing frontiers was kind of deeply embedded, I think, in my childhood. But the claustrophobia, I would say, the sort of idea of, of maybe um, needing more to connect. And also, to, I, you know, I had this accident when I was a child, and that, so that further enhanced that because I was, you know, couldn't basically travel for some time. What also, was the accident? Really? It was a car accident. And then, you know, I think that was actually really important for me to come to art huh. because it was a sort of whole idea of, um, um, you know, I, I sort of, uh, out of that grew a feeling, I suppose, of, of intranquility, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and art somehow was like healing, no? It was, and that links again to Emma Coons because it was, of course, this healing power, but more than that, you know, art... And art was hope. And so I, that's why as a child, I think very early, I kind of connected to art. That's so funny. I think you recounted in another interview the fact that when you first told your parents what you wanted to be a curator, yeah, they thought that meant something to do with curing things. Yeah, yeah they thought it was a, a medical, uh, it was a medical profession. Yes, indeed. But obviously, uh, then they realized that it was actually, when I did my first exhibition in my kitchen, they realized that it was more, you know, more connected to, to, uh, to art. Mm-hmm. I want to get to that exhibition in a bit, but let's go back to this experience with Fishley Weiss in the studio and how that, uh, in a way, altered your trajectory. I was always immersed in history, you know, so I would look at historic paintings of which postcards would exist. And only when I was like something like maybe 16 or 17, I started to realize that actually there were great artists among our contemporaries. And it was somehow prompted by two things. You know, I came across a copy of Vasari, because I think a teacher at school said, because I went to this Lyceum, you know, there wasn't a Lyceum in the small town I grew up, so I went to this Lyceum 20 miles away, and I had to take the train every day. And um, we had some kind of teachers at this Lyceum who were quite sort of into art, and they basically said I should read Vasari. And um, of course, Vasari's, you know, la, vita, lives of the artists, lives of the architects, have a lot to do with, you know, basically this idea that there might be historic figures among, among our contemporaries. And that was a real revelation, you know. Um, then there was another revelation. Um, basically, when I arrived every day at this at, at school, you know, in, in Kreuzling, it's a small town near Weinfeld where I grew up, I always passed by this um, strange. Also during lunch break, we would go and the sandwich or something, we would always pass by this very strange house, which was an abandoned house in a park. It felt very haunted and um, a big house. And I asked one of our teachers, you know, what's this house? And, and, uh, and, and she said that basically it's, it's the house where Professor Binswanger used to, you know, a clinic, so we're back to healing. Mm-hmm. It's a clinic where Professor Binswanger, you know, about whom Foucault wrote his thesis, um, had his, um, uh, you know, had his practice, and uh, and would also um, uh, would also would also be a clinic where basically people would, would stay, you know. And um, uh, my teacher also said that actually it was um, uh, the, the clinic where the famous patient Abi Warburg was was treated, and. Um, and that's basically the clinic where Abi Warburg wrote the famous serpent ritual about the Hopis, you know, ritual, and um, uh, famously presented it to the other patients towards the end of his um, of his stay there. And uh, for me, you know, it was very fascinating to hear as a teenager about Abi Warburg, you know, mm-hmm. and Abi Warburg. It's the first time I heard about an art historian, and I started to be very fascinated. You know, I sort of got hold of a book, and then. Was very fascinated by this idea that he had his memos in Atlas. So this uh, is, I think, this is helpful just for 
to take a moment um, and possibly slow down a bit because I, I feel the velocity of your thinking quite intensely. Can you talk more about Warburg and his Nemnesine and its impact on you as a project? At the heart of his research was this legacy of the classical world, not in the way we could maybe invent the future also with the past. And he developed this extraordinary atlas, um, which uh, the Nemnesine atlas, where, which, you know, I at the time didn't fully understand, but which sort of inspired me to, to basically start to make my own atlas, you know. And what is interesting is that there were no captions and also there wasn't a lot of texts, you know. So he, he really wanted the viewer to do a big part of the, of the work mm -hmm. and worked on these, you know, different sort of connections. So to cut a long story short, it prompted me in my Kinderzimmer, in my children's room, to, to do these panels, you know. So I went from these little shoeboxes, which were galleries, to bigger panels where I started to arrange my, you know, exhibitions. There was somewhere between, you know, historical panels and mood boards. Mm -hmm. um, and I would somehow, you know, begin my curation through that. But I still wasn't aware that I could actually meet living artists. And um, so I read the Vasari book. And Vasari um, basically wrote the Vita, the lives of the artists and architects of, of his period, no, the Renaissance, and he, um, he, um, uh, he made me kind of aware that one could maybe do a similar thing for our time, you know. So the first time I thought, like, wow, maybe I could actually write the lives of the artists and architects of our epoch. And then it was the pre-digital age, it was the 80s, when I was a teenager, 84, 85. So you still had the train timetable um, printed. So it's kind of unthinkable today, but it was a time when we had landlines and uh, the timetable would arrive for the trains, the Swiss trains, you know, as a big book in early January. And the Swiss railway would always have an artist design the cover. And there was this Swiss painter, Claude Sandeau, who designed the cover and also a poster which you had in every railway station. And I really liked it. So I read actually in the local newspaper that this artist had an exhibition in St. Gallen, you know, the town near where my parents lived and where I later studied at university and where I did my first show in the kitchen. And uh, so I told my mother I really wanted to go and see this show. So, you know, she said, of course, we're going to go there and drove there and we went to visit the exhibition. And that's when for the first time I said, like, wow, I really want to meet this artist. You know, I kind of had thought after Vasari, I should meet the artist of our time. So we asked the gallery to connect us and, you know, wrote the artists a letter. Uh, the artist welcomed me in Luzern. And, you know, that's basically when, thank you, when it all began, that's basically when it all began, when, you know, I then realized I could actually start to make systematic studio visits. So between 16 and 19, when I was still at high school, you know, at, at Lyceum, I would basically always, during the summer holidays, go by night train. And, um, uh, and in a way, the second studio visit actually happened in Zurich, because it kind of went from St. Gallen mm -hmm. to Zurich, then to the wider world, you know, wherever I could go by train, Paris, Rome, Naples, um, Hamburg, Berlin, Vienna, so on. And so the second studio visit happened with Fishley and Weiss. And I mean, you ask about that visit because I often say that that's maybe where I was born a second time uh, because it was really an amazing revelation because I came to this studio and it's a Swiss artist, Fischli Weiss, it's Peter Fischli and David Weiss, amazing artists who um, have actually um, worked for many years on, 
on sculpture, but also on this equilibrium uh, ideas that they made photographies of equilibria on the cusp of collapsing. Mm-hmm. And um, I had seen an exhibition and wanted to visit them and had no idea what, you know, what to expect because when I arrived at the studio. Um, they basically um, had a whole setup of equilibria, mm-hmm. but they were no longer equilibria to be photographed, but they were actually equilibria to be filmed mm-hmm. with the uh, director of photography, Pio Corradi, the late Pio Corradi, the great director of photography. They basically filmed these collapsing equilibria and one would always lead to the next. So it became this endless chain reaction no? of um, uh, of, of collapsing equilibria and one thing would unleash the next. Um, and, and just to see this, to experience this, you know, of course today it's a very famous film. Um, it's a film which has inspired so many generations of artists, but to kind of be there, to testimony, the creation, the genesis, you know, of a masterpiece of 20th century art, of late 20th century art, and to just also see this becomes al- kind of alchemy at place, this incredible transformation for me as a teenager was so fascinating that that's really the day when I decided that's what I want to do. I want to work with artists, and somehow I was starting, you know, at that moment also started to wonder how I could be useful to artists, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to go back to a point you raised earlier about intranquility. Back in 2014, the writer D.T. Max asked you to explain your manic personality. And I mean, listeners are probably aware that you've been interviewing artists for decades now. You're also famous for not sleeping very much. And you responded by suggesting that you may be in a permanent state of Pessoa's intranquility. And it it was kind of left there um, as an off-the-cuff remark, and the article moved on. But looking into Pessoa, I became really curious about your relationship to his work and his own autobiography. And I wondered if you could expand on that remark. Yeah, I suppose I came to, to Pessoa somehow via Robert Walser, mm-hmm. because um, when I grew up in Switzerland, you know, I read a lot of Robert Walser. And of course, you know, Robert Walser, the Swiss writer, um, went on his famous walks because he, he basically, in the earlier part of the 20th century, you know, he was a very well-known novelist. He was Kafka admired him. He, you know, had a was part of an international discussion in literature. Went to a sort of a exile from Switzerland to Berlin, where his brother was a famous illustrator, and uh, then went to a fictitious exile to Paris. He wrote the book Gazette Parisienne, but never visited Paris, and then went from this sort of outer exile into an inner exile in Switzerland. Stopped writing. And just went on these endless walks, very near St. Gallen, where I went to, to, to university. And uh, it was kind of interesting because at some point I realized how many artists were fascinated by actually by Walser. And that's also true for Pessoa. You know, many artists are fascinated by Pessoa. And I started to found a museum for Robert Walser in the restaurant where he would always stop or pause on his famous walks. Mm-hmm. And we installed a vitrine there. And I would basically. Um, invite artists to exhibit in this vitrine. And so it was a kind of a very casual museum, you know, sort of basically the restaurant would continue its activities, but in the interstices there would be this small museum and very intimate, no, as terms of exhibitions. And so, yeah, I think I came somehow through reading Walser and talking to artists about Walser to, to Pessoa. And I was always fascinated by neologisms. And of course, this sort of whole idea 
of intranquility is also interesting me a lot because of Henri Michaud, you know, mm -hmm. because Henri Michaud, the French poet and writer, who was a huge influence on me, Michaud is one of these artists who also made a contribution to literature, something I've always been interested in, you know, artists who are also poets, artists who are also novelists, novelists or poets who are also visual artists. We actually did a whole show on that with Lem Sisse, mm -hmm. where we curated for the Manchester International Festival an exhibition about artists who have this double activity visually and, and in literature. And Henri Michaud actually from 72 to 78 used a lot also that notion of, uh, you know, of intranquility. And it's a neologism. Um, and I've been interested in this idea, of course, I mean, because it sort of had also to do with my childhood experience, I suppose, because, you know, having this near, extremely serious near-death experience, you know, with this accident and then being hospitalized for a long time, you know, brought me a lot to reading, I suppose, you know, so that created that deep relationship to books and to literature. It was a lot of time to read and I very intensely started to read. And then I think in a way it also created this awareness maybe early on that every day could be the last day, you know, and that is prompting maybe a feeling, you know, of intranquility. Yet at the same time, I always found that art, you know, in a way maybe art can also help us to go beyond this intranquility, you know, somehow, because I think that it's of, it can transcend it. Mm -hmm. So in a way, um, yeah, maybe that's, that's a, an explanation of it. When you talk about Walzer, um, my heart grows because he's a writer who I'm very fond of as well. There's a kind of pathos to Walzer's writing um, and his, accept is his acceptance of his own ins insignificance in a way that uh, was deeply moving to me. Also the circumstances around um, which he stopped writing, where he famously proclaimed that he was in the asylum to be insane, not to write. And then finally, the way he ended his writing um, through writing in this miniature script, the microscript, which for a long time people thought was some other kind of dialect or language, but it turned out just to be infinitesimally small writing. Yeah, and I actually visited Walter, uh, Werner Morlang uh, when I did my museum because I felt I couldn't do a tribute to Robert Walser without visiting Werner Morlang, who now sadly passed away. And Werner Morlang spent his entire life to decipher these microscripts, you know. Right. It was him who, uh, he was a heroic endeavor because he, people always thought that it was a secret writing, mm -hmm. but Morlang realized that it wasn't a secret writing at all. It was just micro, micro, and it could actually, in a very, very painstakingly kind of time intense way, it could be deciphered. And so Morlang spent decades to do, to do that. And mm -hmm. when I did my museum for Robert Walser, I went to see Marlang to kind of get his blessing and uh, interviewed him and uh, all of that, yeah. So this museum, it was installed in the Hotel Crown restaurant in 1992. Yeah. And you've written that in many different ways, the installation created a subtle interruption in the fabric of reality for this restricted audience from this, for this short span of time. I'm interested in this idea of creating ruptures and how art can start to interfere in um, daily experience. I mean, even the art that first became visible to you, uh, you encountered in the real, the so-called real world, whether it's the side of a medicine packaging or yeah. the back of a train schedule. So can you talk more about 
the process of creating these kinds of ruptures in reality and how curating is integral to that. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of interested how, you know, Valsa created the work sort of at the edge of its disappearance, you know, in a way. And I suppose, you know, these very disjunctive narratives, you know, or fragments, you know, there was no longer a fixed point of view. So it was kind of the walking eye, you know, and actually, um, uh, in a way, it may be also kind of is the, the book by Carl Selig, which is my favorite book related to Walser, because the, the Swiss literary scholar, Carl Selig, who um, spent you know, years visiting Walser, actually wrote the book about his conversations with Robert Walser. And mm. of course, because Walser had decided in his later life not to write anymore, that's the only document you know, where we can actually mm-hmm. have insight into his thinking. And, it's very much, you know, also connected to the film critic Serge Danet, who said, at certain times I have preferred walking, that is to say walking with my feet, to talking, that is to say walking with my mouth. But, in, you know, in the end, it's the, it's the same thing. So Walzer had decided that he would now only basically, you know, walk with his feet and no longer with his mouth or with his pen. And, uh, and it's, of course, super fascinating that all of these, you know, thoughts of these last walks, you know, went into this book of of, uh, of Carl Zedig and further encouraged me to record conversations, you know, with artists and writers because I sort of started to record, I would say, in the in the early nineties, every conversation I have with an artist or writer or poet, uh, so far like almost four thousand hours, and I would say, you know, that the importance of that Carl Zedig book was somehow, uh, you know, uh, a trigger for. For that. And then, of course, the, the fascination for the microscripts, you know, um, b- was enormous for me. I was completely obsessed by that. And uh, and as I said, you know, we went to see Werner Morlang, and uh, and I always remember that he told me in that conversation that actually this external particularity, you know, of these scripts, the fact that they are so small and seemingly illisible, uh, kind of corresponds to the formal components of Walzer's prose, you know. To the unrestrained accumulation of ideas and of associations, which uh, you know lets the concept be asserted more by the casual end of a sheet than by the strictness of a formal rule. Mm. And I always thought that's really beautiful, right? I mean, this idea that um, uh, that it's an unrestrained accumulation of ideas and association, which let a concept be asserted more by the casual end of a sheet than by the strictness, kind of of. Uh, you know, of a, of a formal rule. And then, of course, also the importance of restaurants, you know, because mm-hmm. he says, Walzer says, one cannot start, go to restaurants too early. Uh, you know, my life has been spent, in my working life, in big parts in cafes and restaurants. You know, I've often written and worked and had meetings with artists there, you know, before I had an office. I mean, I only had an office from 1999 onwards, you know, when mm-hmm. I started to work for the Musée d'Art Moderne. But before... I had an office, kind of my, my office was a, was kind of a cafe and was a restaurant. And so that's also why the Walser Museum was a migratory museum, you know, because it was a movable vitrine. And so it was very modest and humble and discreet and elastic, you know, and it could always question kind of its own definition of a museum, you know. So it wasn't dependent kind of on, how could one say that, on static hardware, you know. Mm. But um, it, it sort of... Um, yeah, it's it's it was a, a migratory museum, and of course, in that sense, also could have gone. The idea was also that we could bring this vitrine elsewhere, because obviously, 
Walsers, you know, life is a kind of, a, as Mark Harmon said, is a tale of four cities. You know, it was Zurich from 1896 to 1905. Then he went to Berlin to visit his then much more famous brother, mm -hmm. the illustrator, Karl Walser. Then he was in Biel from 13 to 21, and then in Bern from 21 to, you know, to 29. And he, he always had this intention to go to Paris. Um, as he wrote, intentions of traveling to Paris traverse me gently. <laughs> And uh, that plan, you know, which traversed him gently, was was never realized. And, you know, Carl Zedig asks him about Paris and he says, never, never was I in Paris. And uh, it's, um, you know, it was a dream. Um, and, uh, and he wrote Gazette Parisienne, which is very beautiful, uh, where he, he basically, um, uh, you know, fictitiously travels you know to to paris it's it's a bit like joseph cornell you know when joseph cornell does these tiny little boxes i don't know if you know these little boxes by cornell where he invites us to sort of fictitious european grand tours but as we know too well you know joseph cornell never left the american continent um and from there we can also connect it you know to maybe we could even connect it to um emily uh, you know dickinson's travels huh. Huh. So we've just gone on another great epic <laughs> tangent, which um, I'm totally enthralled by. But again, I feel like I need to go back now and pick up some things that have been yeah. left. And I mean, for me, one place to focus on is the restaurant, just for a brief moment. I kept thinking about this writer, Enrique Villa Matas. Do you know? Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've read The, log the Logic of Castle. Uh, which takes place primarily in a restaurant. Um, but one thing that he said is that life is not what we lead, it's what we invent in our heads. Mm -hmm. And so to go back to this, th this place you ended with Dickinson, it's this internal reality that seems to really draw you in somehow. And I wonder, how do you go about making those things external? Or what are these kind of imaginative possibilities that um, that exist right now for you inside of your head? Yeah, I think over the last sort of three or four years, you know, this idea of world building and uh, maybe, you know, inventing, you know, yeah, world building, you know, has, has been very fascinating for me in relation to video games. You know, I started to kind of see more and more artists when I go to studios, a bit like when I went to Fish Device, you know, I saw the chain reaction. Um, film, I kind of would go to artist studios and they would work on video games. And um, I started to be really interested in this idea of um, maybe video games being the possibility of a, of a Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, in our time. Because if you think about, uh, you know, Diaghilev, who was besides Walser and, and um, many others, uh, an inspiration, you know, talks about the Ballet Russe and then through the ballet, he brings together, I mean, he was originally a painting curator and he brings together like Goncharova or Picasso for the stage set and then Stravinsky for the music and all of that. Um, in a way, I kind of think with video games today, you know, if you think about the way literature plays a role in a video game, the way, you know, animation, the way, of course, film 
enters it in you know, the way music enters it. I speak to a lot of composers who tell me their dream would be to do a soundtrack for a video game. So I started to be very interested in that and we basically uh, have this exhibition right now at the Serpentine of Gabriel Massan, which is basically you know, a video game which you could go afterwards. It's still on until November. Um, where we commissioned Gabriel Massan to, to do a video game and there's also the exhibition World Building where I tried to bring together more than 30 artists who actually invent their own video games and also a history of artists interacting with video games. And that show world building is at the moment, because obviously it's digitally it can pop up in different places. It's in Düsseldorf and at Julia Stoschek uh, collection and also at the Centre Georges Pompidou in France, in Metz at the same time. Um, so I would say that at the mo over the last couple of years, it's been very much that. And I'm fascinated by the history, you know, how actually artists have, um, I would say, created a, a sort of a detournement, how they have actually uh, used the aesthetic of video games, but also hacked video games, you know, somewhere from early start event to, to Jody in the 80s to Corey Archangel in the 2000s, you know, these artists would sort of crack the code of video games and mm -hmm. turn them into something else, also criticize stereotypes of AAA games. Mm -hmm. But then today with the accessibility of game engines, you know, we have more the possibility, artists, more the possi artists have more the possibilities to kind of invent their own games. Mm -hmm. And of course that brings us to a sort of a world building, um, and, and, and in these games, very often, they're also mission-driven games, you know, so if you think um, um, Luan Mine has made a game, you know, related to refugees, the Institute of Queer Ecology um, develops, you know, mission-driven games, um, <coughs> and at the same time, also immersive games, which are kind of between a physical and the virtual reality, you know, mm -hmm. Cake and would do games which are very virtual, but at the same time, they involve very, very physical installations. Um, so I think it's interesting for the future of exhibitions to think about these video games. And it's, it's really a question, you know, are these video games potentially the, the new Gesamtkunstwerk? Mm -hmm. And of course, the Gesamtkunstwerk, not in a Wagnerian sense, because there's always been this problematic idea of the Gesamtkunstwerk, that it's overpowering, that it diminishes the viewer. I'm not interested in that. It's a Gesamtkunstwerk which, you know, empowers the viewer to do come back you know to what we said about Walzer also to do at least half of the work. It's funny how in the past or you often when you describe an exhibition you've made you talk about the rules of the game that you set up yeah and so exhibition making or the exhibition itself becomes a kind of game and at the same time if you're talking about reality and the simulation of reality that video games is involved in you've also said that you believe exhibitions can, can and should go beyond simple illustration or representation, that they can also produce reality themselves. Mm -hmm. I also want to just go back to Fishley and Weiss again and certain clues maybe in their early work that can help us talk about mapping yeah. and, and territories. I mean, again, if you're talking about world building, it's totally relevant to look at a project like The Visible World by Fishley and Weiss it can never be seen in its entirety and it denies the total view. Yeah. Um, there's also this project by them called Suddenly This Overview, um, which is a series of hand-modeled, unfired sculptures. I mean, other artists that work with maps, uh, Alighiero Boetti, uh, seemed to have a real influence on you and actually was the one who encouraged you to start asking artists about their unrealized projects, I think. And even Hans-Peter Feldman, this project of his called A Hundred, 
yeah. which basically chronicle the kind of lifespan in a way. So there are these really totalizing, all-encompassing projects by different artists that start to underscore this tension between the map and the territory, the map and the thing that the map is representing. And I think it's that kind of uncanniness or that tear in reality that you're talking about in relation to the Walzer exhibition mm -hmm. that you start to feel when the exhibition <laughs> it's in this borderline state of representing something and then being the thing itself. Yeah, I mean, I think the the idea of, you know, cartography is, is indeed, you know, something which which is important. We've also done a map marathon, you know, so it's always been kind of part part of the work and I suppose always, you know, being aware that it's of course incomplete, you know, I think. But to come back to the the rule of the game, which is your previous two questions, no? And and I think the idea of the rule of the game was it sort of came to my life quite early because I mean when I was so young, you know, and I would meet all these amazing artists between 16, 17 and 18, they of course, you know, I would suddenly arrive there as a teenager and it's kind of unusual, to say the least, you know, suddenly they had a 17-year-old or 16-year-old in their studio. Um, and one way they often responded to, I mean, everybody has been unbelievably generous with their time in an almost mentorship type of way. But one, one thing, you know, because I was so young, I think one wouldn't do that with someone five years later, was of course that they all somehow gave me advice and also not only tried to be helpful and give advice what I could one day do, but also kind of gave me tasks, you know? And so, and there were lots of different tasks. I mean, Rosemary Tucker said I should not only visit young artists like her. I was 85, so she was in her 30s. I was a teenager. Um, uh, but also, I should visit also pioneering artists who might have been forgotten, you know? Sort of protest against forgetting. I've done that ever since. Alighiero Boetti said, you know, I should look into unrealized projects uh, and ask artists about, not squeeze artists into sort of practices, um, but actually ask artists about what they really want to do. And I think that's interesting for artists of all disciplines that we sort of ask them, because I think we all have unrealized projects we can't do within the parameters of our industries or fields. And he said, you know, you should basically ask artists what they would love to do and then help them to do that, you know, against all odds. Something I've done ever since. Um, you know, and I think a lot of these tasks, you know, were, were kind of, in a way, you know, given, given to me by artists. And Boltanski, I visited Annette Messager and Christian Boltanski also when I was a teenager. And Boltanski said, um, you should do exhibitions which invent a new rule of the game. Think every day about, you know, what's a new rule of the game, you know, what's, and, and develop this rule of the game with the artists. Don't impose it. But it's almost like, so it's not, you know, De it's not basically imposed, but it's more derived mm -hmm. from conversation. So I suppose that's what it has to do with. But also, I think in a way, um, yeah, and there are many, many more examples of that, you know, of artists basically giving me, you know, giving me tasks. But I would say with, um, with the rule of the game, it also has to do with the fact that it's about starting a process which then can evolve, you know, because I've always been interested in exhibitions which have a longer duration. So, for example, this year is the 30th anniversary of Do It, no? So Do It started in 93, now we're in 2023, 
And there has never been a moment since 1993 where there wasn't a version of do it somewhere in the world. So we've somehow done what we, we imagined at the beginning as a dream to do, which is to do a show which would travel more than the family of man, right? But also, we wanted with Poltanski and Lavia with this show to do a show which is fully sustainable, you know, because basically there's never a transport involved. The curator and the artist don't travel to the venue. It's locally interpreted. Mm -hmm. Local artists are added to the mix. Not only are local artists interpreting the instructions. So I have to imagine for your listeners that the exhibition is basically a do-it-yourself exhibition. Every artist writes a DIY piece. Mm -hmm. And then the museums or the, the venues who do it, they can like a musical score. You know, when you, like, when you have a musical score, it's played somewhere by a local orchestra. And then, um, you know, um, uh, neither the composer nor the orchestra have to travel. But the only difference is that actually we also do add these local artists then to the mix. Mm. So that means the, the, the local becomes part of the global, no? And at the same time, the, the, there's never transport involved. So it addresses a lot of issues right now mm. in terms of the climate emergence. There's no transport involved. And if you're basically bringing objects, so let's, for example, say, you know, this object is becoming part of the do-it show after the exhibition it can go back you know it's, it's a cup and the cup becomes part of the artwork after the exhibition can be used again as a cup uh -huh. so it's being recycled or upcycled in a way so so but also do it then like a, uh, an evolving system continue to learn mm -hmm. so it has also to do the rule of the game is not only about an exhibition, but it's about a learning process, you know, so that it's an open system and that it can learn, because I always want exhibitions to learn. This is bringing up so much. I know we have to wrap up soon, yeah. so I'll just try and keep it yeah, short. Yeah. To me, it's, it's bringing up issues about value in the process of curation or valuing work and designating something as having merit to show in an exhibition. Um, at the same time, when you're setting the rules for these games, you're saying it's not about imposing, it's about deriving. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of diminishment, I guess, of the authority or the authorship of the curator in that sense, um, which to me um, seems to kind of define your approach to this kind of work. So what I wanted to know is, to what extent do you, as a curator, trust your own gut or a sense of taste versus what you might consider the broader needs and desires of the viewing public? Are these two aspects ever in opposition? I think it's always about, you know, building bridges, you know, and I think that at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's also about um, creating new alliances, you know, within, within society. So it's not only about bringing visitors to exhibitions, but it's also about bringing, you know, art into society. So I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a contradiction. I think it's a negotiation. And I think it's part of the work of the curator to, you know, um, to work on that. And, um, um, and not only, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily to do exhibitions in order for them to fulfill a need or a desire of a viewing public, you know, only. Because I think very often art is there to, to change what we expect from it, you know. And I think it's also our work in that sense to... To contribute to that change, you know, to contribute to what actually that it might actually an exhibition might change what we think is art, you know, and and of course you know artists permanently expand what is this notion of art? It's an expanded notion of art. Artists always surprise us, you no, know? um, and then it's of course um, not about basically um, 
creating that as a isolated experience but somehow building as many bridges as possible and bring people from many fields as possible to make this experience and that means also that often you know we need to go beyond doors because I think we should not forget that when we hide out behind doors um, then that's very limiting you know sometimes for the experience I think we need protected spaces for RTS that's why we need museums and consoles and exhibition spaces but we need also find ways to actually go from the gallery space to the park into the city into society because let's think back I mean if you know the work of Emma Kunz would not have been on this package and the package might not have arrived as a medicine in the cupboard of my parents and on the table, you know, on the dinner table of my parents, um, I might not ever have had this encounter with art. So mm. knowing that, I've always believed that we need to create this experience for people, you know. Hans Ulrich, thank you so it's much. My pleasure. No, likewise, I really appreciate it. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Hans Ulrich Obrist. Special thanks this week to Richard Wentworth, Schumann Bassar, Rhiannon Stanford, and Max Shackleton. Thanks as always to Scandolin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.